They say the world can be hard, cruel, and ugly. Trust me, it gets worse if you're hungry and thirst. Doesn't push you from position, last place to first. Can't build a foundation without having feet in the dirt. So I put in the work, grind harder than most. I don't chase accolades of the living, I'm facing a ghost. That's what makes me the GOAT. Depending on who you ask, my brother, whatever task, got it covered like a mask. Guaranteed they can't see me at the open run. Cause I cook competitors until they look well done. Don't act like you don't know where I hail from. I had to climb up out the trenches, sit on benches till my time had come. Don't be mad at the player, be mad at the game. Sneak this in the hating, that's a flag on the play. Me falling off, huh? That'll be the day I'm like, bolt in the race, leave the track, flambe, it's the open run. Awareness comes equipped with its own special set of burdens, responsibilities, if you will. That awareness, while a gift, can also be a curse. And before we get too deep into it, allow me to welcome you to The Open Run with Will Strickland. That would be me. The Open Run with Will Strickland is brought to you by the fine folks at Press. We are press.net. I can be found at W underscore Strickland and the number one on Twitter, Will Strickland and the number one on IG and across all streaming platforms where podcasts can be found. So make sure you subscribe, like, follow as necessary. Again, getting back to awareness. I sometimes feel like I get in trouble for being so aware. It happens. I pay attention to everything as much as I possibly can. We're not living on a different planet. So for those who are aware, when Earl Simmons died last week, there's a video that popped up, a viral image of Robert Ross, better known to you as Bacardi Rob, aka Black Rob, in a very poor state of health. It was sad to see someone who it made millions of dollars for a multinational corporation that had a boutique label under it by the name of Bad Boy. And this is one of their employees, one of their, because, I mean, let's think about it. The receptionist and the artist are basically the same as employees. Uh, obviously, in the hierarchy of things, there's a difference. The artists are the ones who allegedly keep the lights on. The artists come in and are looked at as independent contractors instead of employees. Employees who should have been eligible for a benefits package, a program, health, mental, medical, vision, dental, enroll in the 401k. They are employees. And this awareness became even more striking when shortly after the death of Earl Simmons, aka DMX, Robert Ross lost his life as well, even though they released him from the hospital after this viral video. But where did they release him to? Because he was homeless. And there was another video where Rob himself admits that he's in a bad state. He and his friend were in this literal apartment. It was tough to watch, tough to see. And of course, some of the burden, you know, as, as people are prone to do in the court of public Twitter, not even of public opinion, because Twitter and opinions, eh, we'll do that some other time. But Diddy was guilty. Oh, Diddy, he's a paper gangster. Look at what he does to all his artists. But the artist do have some degree of responsibility here. If we're going to be totally fair to the circumstance, the situation, they do. Rob Ross, I don't think Diddy put him in jail, made him do that bid. I'm pretty sure Diddy was not the ward for Rob's health, mental, emotional, physical, or otherwise. And I won't do a deep dive trying to speculate on how much of Rob's earnings Diddy held or what Rob did with those once he got them. But just know he was homeless. And to quote the great James Baldwin, anyone who has ever struggled with poverty 
knows how extremely expensive it is to be poor. I'm called the entrepreneurionaire for a multitude of reasons, one of which is because of the people I keep in my circle. They give me riches. They bring me the value that I require and I need. My awareness keeps the number of friends I have to a minimum for a reason, because the truest of friends, you don't need 8 million of them. You, I can't imagine having that many. I know lots of people. I only have a couple friends. Rest in peace, Robert Ross. Though I wonder where all your friends were who were hanging out with you when you were making all that money. Rolling with bad boy. Someone very special to me told me that my awareness has its own set of burdens. She was absolutely correct. A man who 55 years ago, this past Sunday, took on an enormous burden and becoming the first black head coach in NBA history, William Felton Russell became the head coach of the Boston Celtics in 1966. And for three years, he was that man. He was a player coach, winning two titles in those three years before he retired. We will never see that again. So I don't respect that. We just had Jackie Robinson Day, April 15th, not too long ago. Russell was built from the same cloth of Jackie Robinson. When we talk about Jackie Robinson, we spend more time talking about you know, how he overcame all the things that were done to him as, as opposed to just really looking at the accomplishments. Of course, he had to bear a burden too. Was an awareness by the players of the Atlanta Hawks necessary for them to oust one black head coach and Lloyd Pierce to bring in a very storied black head coach in Nathaniel McMillan? Yes, I said Nathaniel. I learned a lot of stuff down south. That's the first time I ever heard someone call someone Nathaniel. Nathaniel. I think Outkast had something like that on a song once. But Nate McMillan doing his thing in the ATL. They're in fourth in the East. And I believe that uh, if they do anything in the playoffs, he's going to keep that job full term for a long time. You see Clint Capella playing out of his mind 24 and 25 the other night. And I'm talking about 24 points and 25 rebounds. Trey TL, Trey Young. Doing well in the scoring end as well as assisting, being better with the ball, more efficient. I can't wait till DeAndre Hunter comes back. I like what they have down there. I don't know if they got anything from the yield of Bogdan Bogdan Bogdanovich. But he's back and playing after breaking his kneecap. Nothing from Danilo Gallinari. And they got rid of Ray John Rondo. So it's the young guys or not. And that's what's going to happen. And so far they're thriving under the leadership of Nathaniel. Speaking of the ATL, coach who used to coach for the Atlanta Hawks back in the day, Mike Woodson, the new Indiana University head coach, found out in the article on Deadspin that Mike Woodson, who took a six-year deal for about $18 million, so $3 million a year, only to find out that the same university where Mike Woodson was a star, was on the last undefeated team to win a national championship, had a pretty solid NBA career, has been a solid NBA coach wherever he's gone, even though he hasn't always won. Then they offered someone who'd never won anything. Been to two national championship games from a mid-major in Butler. I'm talking about the president, Brad Stevens, in Boston. They offered him seven years and $70 million. He turned that down. Boy, you got to get a better agent, my guy. Or is it something more systemic than just Oh, it's $52 million between what Mike Woodson had to take or took. Because, you know, you get what you negotiate in life sometimes. And what they offered Brad Stevens. The idea that he was this wonder kid. Uh, hey, look. Solid coach. Nice guy. 
win something before I start calling you that guy. He hasn't even been the NBA Finals, even though his teams past four or five years been the Eastern Conference Finals, at least three of those. So, you know, he has something under the belt, but not enough for to have that kind of disparity in the amount of money they were offering him. But again, you know, somebody might call me, oh, you're trying to race bait. I mean, you know, that's a pretty wide margin for somebody who has experience on the professional level, who has history with a school, won a championship there. Again, I don't want to digress. And maybe I am going to digress just a little bit about the Raptors fans who are waffling and whining and pretending and teetering between tanking and realizing the fact that the Raptors just aren't that good right now. Know why? It's not just the talent on the floor. All phases of an organization have to be in harmony, for, for the most part, unless you have an extraordinary player who can just over, help you overcome all that stuff. Yes, you know who I'm talking about. Raptors don't have that. But they do have the one free agent they did not sign, Masaya Jury. It's going to be a very interesting summer because it. I have a feeling that somehow the Raptors are going to either make it to the play-in series and tournament and kind of mess up their draft status or totally tank and lose a fan base that already is spoiled because they think 2019 is supposed to happen every year. I get it. I get it. But hey, it is what it is. Shouts out to my man Jimmy Butler who called his team soft <laughs> with the extra tease at the end of it. Said bully ball was necessary and that my man Idris Adebayo, better known to you as Bam or Bam Bam. Bam Adebayo was, you know, a nice young cat, first time all-star, got a big check, jumper game looking nasty, but he wants them to get down low because no one really at his size in the middle that has his skill set. Jimmy Butler believes fully and wholeheartedly in Bam. And then Bam goes out after hearing that and he hits the game winner against Kyrie Irving and the Brooklyn Nets. The Miami Heat can be a dangerous team. They made it to the Eastern Conference Finals last year. They made it to the NBA Finals. They stretched the Lakers to six. Not the same roster. Not the same energy. Not the same fire. But the old vet guys. Drakic, Iguodala, the new acquisition, Trevor Ariza, they're going to pay off in ways we can't see right now. But when the playoffs start, we shall. Also of note, Kevin Wayne Durant did play in that game. He was injured after starting off a perfect, I think, 4 for 4 from the field. Five contusion, running into Trevor Ariza on a dribble drive to the hoop, out indefinitely. We don't know. Injured again. I mean, these guys have played seven games together. And when I say these guys, I'm talking about Kyrie, James Harden, and Kevin Durant. Seven games. But somehow they they will be the overwhelming favorite to win the NBA championship. Please make those bets. I should bet against them. And I'm an advocate of guys doing what they want to do in their spare time. It's their time anyway. Kevin Durant, when he's not into a Twitter beef with Shannon Sharp, who used a fake quote to attribute to Durant, and they had a little beef back and forth. And what's also a little fun fact, Kevin Durant has more tweets than he does career points in the National Basketball Association. Just wanted to leave you with that. He's on podcasts as well. Someone asked him to name his five best teammates, and he named Wardell Stephen Curry, Clay Alexander Thompson, Kyrie Andrew Irving, James Edward Harden Jr., and Serge Jonas Ibaka. I know he has more names than that, but I'm going to stick with Jonas right now. 
or Jonas, depending upon how you say it. Somehow he left off Russell Westbrook. Now, when it got hot, I, I found a spot in the shade, and I'm not sure if Kevin Durant was doing the same, but I think he... No, I lie. He knew exactly what he was doing. And I don't know why he would do it. It's small. It's petty. But guess what's not petty? What we have on the other side of the open run with Will Strickland. So come back for more right after this. <laughs> Welcome back to The Open Run with Will Strickland, on with my very, very special guest, a man who I would say needs no introduction, but I'm going to allow him to reintroduce himself. His name is Dave, Z to the I-R, I, no, let me stop, I'll just stop. Dave Zirin is on with me. Dave, what's going on, my man? Oh, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. There's nowhere else I'd rather be than to chop it up with you, Will Strickland. Well, I mean, you're not a paid commercial endorser here, are you? No, I'm not. Uh, so, I'm offering nothing but my own desire to chop it up with you. That's it. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, man. So I'm not going to do the deep dive into the resume as we do every program. When we have our special guest on. I love you to run your resume because you have a wide and expansive as a multi-hyphenate in multimedia, whether it's books or... I mean, there's a lot going on, Dave. You got to be a Swiss Army knife these days. You know that better than everybody. Uh, not just anybody, but everybody. I mean, I've got a podcast called Edge of Sports. I'm the sports editor at The Nation magazine. Uh, I've written 11 books about the politics of sports. The next one's called The Kaepernick Effect. It comes out this September. Mm. And, um, and I just do whatever else I can do. You know, write a guest column here, teach a guest class there. I mean, whatever it takes to keep the lights on. Yeah, I mean, you're doing better than that. I mean, now, it, can you explain what being the sports editor at a magazine like The Nation is before we yeah, go into your other stuff? Great, great question. I write about the intersection of sports and politics. As much mm -hmm. as I love to write about certain issues like how Russell Westbrook is averaging 11 assists a game throwing to this Washington Wizards team that misses layups at an alarming rate, as fun <laughs> as that would be to write about, uh, I actually spend my time writing and editing articles about the intersection of sports and politics, the collision of sports and politics. Absolutely. Now, everybody knows what that means these days because it's so plentiful, whether it's the Major League Baseball, moving the All-Star game out of Georgia, uh, whether it's athletes speaking out. I mean, we, there, there are so many ways in which sports and politics intersect these days that it's kind of an obvious subject. But, you know, I am proud that I've been doing this a long time. Uh, been on this beat 15, 20 years, just trying to tease out these areas where sports and politics come together, whether you're talking about the Olympics, public funding of stadiums. I mean, there's so many subjects where politics and sports are just holding hands or linking arms. And I've tried to elucidate those issues the best I can over the course of my career. I think that's part of the reason why we gravitate to each other, Dave, in so, in so many different ways, whether we were doing All Balls Don't Bounce when we were doing the tour, and we're gonna get into that a little bit later. Um, but again, you, you spoke about that intersection, you know, as much as people say, keep politics out of sports, it's the politicians who are putting themselves 
injecting themselves into sport. Absolutely. Right? So, or you have pundits on political networks who are now like teams now. This is the AFC versus the NFC or mm-hmm. Fox versus CNN uh, all the time. Shut up and dribble. What does that have to do with anything? And right. as a citizen of the United States, your job is not who you are. Your vocation is does not make up everything that you are. You're a taxpayer. You're a homeowner. You have every right to talk about your elected officials, good, bad, or indifferent. And somehow, and that becomes, this is when it becomes a multi-tiered, multi-layered conversation um, where race and gender uh, start to come into play. And then we talk about uh, the, the, the construct and the institutions of white supremacy. And that's a whole nother level of the game. Yeah. And it's so deeply embedded in sports as well. I mean, to take it back to the very beginning, and this to me is such a foundational argument, is like there's a contradiction at the heart of sports when it first Mm. professionalized and became leagues about 150 years ago. A very, very central contradiction. And that's that sports is supposed to be this meritocracy, this level playing field. And anybody who's good enough can make it. But also, of course, baked in the cake of sports is the politics of exclusion. You know, women, you don't play. Uh, If you're black or brown, create your own leagues and we don't want to hear from you. So as black and brown folks, as women, as they attempted to find space in the sports world, as they attempted to be able to prove that they were the best to be able to take the field, a battle ensues between Mm. the politics of exclusion and the politics of inclusion, the politics of racism and the politics of anti-racism. And you see this play out repeatedly over the course of the last 150 years. So to say politics has nothing to do with sports, it really is like saying sugar has nothing to do with cake. I mean, that's so deeply baked in to what the process is and to what the structure is that it can't help but explode. It's very explosive right now. It was very explosive in the 60s and 70s. It was quieter in the 80s and 90s and the first part of the aughts, but that doesn't mean it wasn't still there. It was humming along, doing its thing, politics and sports. There was more than enough for me to write about, but we've reached one of those inflection points right now where it is an explosion. It's a weather van, and we would do wise to hear what these athletes are trying to say. I think it's great that now with the explosion of social media, Yes. And what I like to call the attention economy, because we do have one. And we're going to talk about that more in depth when we talk about uh, the NCAA women's basketball, the women's volleyball, which I saw you talk about not too long ago on CBC with uh, one of my former partners on All Balls on Bounce, Morgan Campbell, and also a friend of the program, Megan McPeak. Um, some of those things that, that come into play um, as far as attention. But like there is equity in retweets and likes and, and, and stuff like that. So you notice that having your own platform, being able to say what you want to say without a middle person in there to kind of shape the narrative that they want to shape, mm-hmm. as opposed to the athlete coming out and saying, okay, I'm saying what I'm saying on Instagram, on whatever platform, on my podcast, on my television show. They have that that level of, uh, of, of reach now that the John Carlos's and the Bill Russell's and the artists formerly known as Ferdinand Lewis Alcindor Jr., they did not have. And yeah. so to have that, and now it's even, you know, to the degree that people try to suppress that is deep. And I love the fact that you're able to speak on that in a way that, I mean, the nation is really in a really old magazine. I think it's, how old is it, the nation? Over 150 years. And I'm the first sports editor they've ever mm. had. 
I mean, because partly because I made a hard, hard argument with them about 14 years ago that they needed to cover sports, that if mm. you don't cover sports, you're not actually covering politics. Mm. So that's what I, I felt the need to argue with them. And that's what now what I've been arguing in the pages of the magazine these last many years. But you make some very critical points. Like I, I've often argued that the, the great game changers of our modern age, and by our modern age, I mean the last 10 years, are the existence of a movement off the field, like the fact that there is a Black Lives Matter movement that has captured the imagination of a young generation of folks, and young athletes are part of that generation, so they're connected to it. And then the other big change is social media and the mm. ability of athletes to be able to reach directly to fans and go around the filter of the mainstream media and speak their minds and speak what they have to say. And then what you're saying is absolutely correct about equity, because what I have found since social media has taken the center stage, you see a lot of the old school media chasing what people are tweeting about. Absolutely. What the discussions are about. So all of a sudden they're talking about things that I would argue a generation ago, they never would have talked about at all because it's gaining that kind of steam in social media. And the big, big point to me, the turning point, if you will, was when uh, LeBron James, Dwayne Wade organized the Miami Heat to pose with hoodies after the murder of Trayvon Martin in 2012. Mm -hmm. What was so important about that is that it was the first viral sports and politics photograph. Um, it was the first one that was able to then lead the news. It was the first one that influenced other athletes to be able to speak out. So many other things were going on right there uh, precisely because um, of the use of social media and the manipulation of social media. And then it got that extra twist because the people behind it are LeBron James and Dwayne Wade. And when you have superstars take the lead on this, it creates a kind of force field over other players who want to speak out. Like Atan Thomas was very outspoken in the early part of the 20th century, but because it's Atan Thomas, he basically has to watch out for himself. It's an individual mm. issue. When you have LeBron James, it becomes a league issue. Well, with LeBron, I'm sorry, on the podcast, I'm not allowed to call him that name because it triggers so much emotion in people who have nothing to do with protecting the legacy of Michael Jeffrey Jordan, but that's a whole nother conversation. So he is hashtag he who shan't be named. I think you make a great point about the hoodies and Trayvon Martin, uh, blessed dead to Trayvon Martin, and that being the first big viral moment. If you think about it in history, when you think about the change in technology, so FDR was the first radio president. Mm -hmm. JFK was the first television president. Obama was the first digital president who utilized the digital media in the way. So you look at the photo over your right shoulder as a foundational thing. When you talk about the the the, the, the viral um, image of LeBron and those guys in their hoodies, seeing John Carlos, Tommy Smith, and the late Peter Norman from Australia standing there on that podium and standing up for something and how it sparked so much in the world and really was an impetus for a lot of activity. But again, you talked about Etan Thomas and Johnny, uh, John Carlos and the things he had gone through, and we're going to go through that in a minute. But LeBron was willing to risk his millions upon millions of dollars in endorsements, deals, and, 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 and promotion and sponsorship to stand up and say this. And for him to do that and it not affect his bottom line in a way negatively, I should say, is an amazing thing. And it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a sign of the times. 
Yeah, and that was a game changer too when athletes saw that not only would you not necessarily – I should be clear when I say NBA athletes because in mm. football it's been a much different story. But when basketball players saw that you could do what LeBron did and not only have it not hurt your bottom line but actually burnish it, I mean, that was a big deal in and of itself. Mm. And I, uh, uh, what social media has done, it, it's very – interesting to compare and contrast with John Carlos and Tommy Smith and Peter Norman from 68 because they, they had their protest on the medal stand of the 200 meter Olympic games. But then in the aftermath, there was no media that they trusted to even talk to. They did one interview with the BBC because they thought they'd get a fair shake. It didn't even broadcast in the United States. And even that interview didn't go particularly well. Mm. I mean, you, you, you have this the most famous image in Olympic history, arguably the most famous image in sports history, and they were not given space to even be able to explain why they did it. And mm. so left to the interpretation of others to say all kinds of things that weren't true about them, about their motivations, and a lot of myths lasted for decades around mm. what they did precisely because they – did not have because of white supremacy and, and the, the way media operated, they did not have the space to be able to speak it. And so social media provides that space to be able mm -hmm. to say, this is why we're doing it. This is the motivation. Don't get it twisted. And okay. is new on the landscape. Uh, new even from some of the few athletes who decided to be against the Iraq war in the early 2000s and mm -hmm. fought themselves buried for it and unable to provide space in which to speak their minds. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad we have this platform to be able to share with you and, and share with everyone who's listening in conversation with Dave Zyron from The Nation magazine and also Edge of Sports, your podcast. Yes. And you also have a show with Etan Thomas there in D.C. Yeah, The Collision, we do a radio show together. Um, I mean, I think that's so important. Like, I believe so much in what we're doing. I believe so much in podcasting. I also believe there's got to still be a place for terrestrial radio to be able to talk to folks because so much of terrestrial radio is kind of a garbage heap. So we try to, like, change that the most that we can through our humble show on WPFW 89.3 FM. So it's a weekly show. Um, you know, like I said at the beginning, you got to be a Swiss Army knife these days if you're going to be in media. You got to teach yourself because oftentimes there's not someone there to teach you how to do a bunch of these different things. But I got to say, I've been working with Atan for years. It's been an absolute gift because he brings not just his own politics and experience to the table, but uh, he also brings the credibility of having played 10 years in the NBA. No doubt. No doubt. And, and we're looking to eventually get him on the podcast as well. We connected for the first time, maybe 10, 11 years ago. Um, you had written a book. Oh, actually we connected before that because we screened a film at the yeah. real world film festival early on in our podcast days. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that film before we get to the book? Goodness gracious. Yeah, I, I did a film called um, Not Just a Game. Uh, it was pretty much an overview of the history of politics, protest, power, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, we used a lot of footage that w from game footage, which technically you're not legally allowed to do. But when you intersperse that in, you keep the viewer's attention. Like it's one thing mm -hmm. to talk about concussions in football. It's another thing to do it while on the screen you have, bam, you know, all these plays would actually show what happens. You know, you grab the viewer's attention that way. Technically, mm -hmm. not 
legal to do, but we believe in the concept called fair use, which is that we have the right to run whatever we want to run as long as we're doing some sort of cultural commentary upon it. And if NFL wants to sue us, bring it on because we think we're protected. A lot of people are cautious about this. And I understand why the NFL and NBA, all these leagues, they're they're, they're scary. They've got a Mm. team of lawyers. They're going to go after you. But at the same time, they're such important cultural products in our society. And they shape our society so much that the idea that we would be scared off from talking about it is is, is unacceptable. No doubt. So we talked about the film. And then the book came up. You did a book with John Carlos. Yes. Right? All Balls Don't Bounce uh, brought you up for a tour in Toronto. And we were able to meet a man who his poster, that poster, in my nursery, you would normally see like, you know, the what would they call the thing? The little thing that rotates around? A mobile. Yeah. So it's around you. I see the it's Malcolm X and, and John Carlos, Tommy Smith and Peter wow. Norman in my room. This is my father. You know, blessed dead. He was that guy. Wow. And um, so to 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 have that be an influence on what we were doing and to have you guys come up and meet, you know, Uncle John and really connect with you. And like it was a surreal moment. But we got to connect. And I think that's a, a great thing because we our politics, if you want to call it that, are very mm-hmm. similar mm-hmm. in what we want to relate to the world through sport. And mm-hmm. so I want to thank you for allowing us to be a part of that experience as well. Oh, no. I mean, that that was my, my gift. Uh, I mean, it was a gift to me is what I should say, um, not just to connect with 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 you fine folk. But I mean, just traveling with John and we traveled to Europe, we traveled around the United States, hyping the book. I mean, meeting people and see, I think John Carlos is just like one of the great public speakers and communicators. So it was always a treat for me to share a stage with him, throw him some questions, have him answer the questions, have him tell some stories and have everybody line up afterwards to meet him and just be kind of starstruck. I mean, Mm. own grandchildren when we did an event in dc and his family was living in manassas virginia at the time his grandchildren came up and it was the first time they'd ever seen him speak they were like 11 and 13 years old and when it was done they came up to him and they said uh granddaddy you're like batman (laughs) and went went so nuts for him and 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 this idea that he's you know mild-mannered bruce wayne until it's time to be batman and step up I mean, right. it, was, it was such a treat to be able to be part of that experience, just to watch John Carlos, frankly, get his flowers, get his due, you know, be greeted by hundreds and hundreds of people wherever we went. I mean, it was it was a terrific experience. I was just so proud to be a fly on the wall. Well, we, we, you were more than just a fly on the wall. You were integral to making that book happen. Can you tell everyone what the, what the name of the book is so they can go out and pick it up? Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, it's called The John Carlos Story, The Sports Moment That Changed the World. And if you don't know John Carlos, I mean, he's from Harlem, New York. He's got great stories about growing up in the New York City of the 1950s and 60s. You know, you have Malcolm X preaching on street corners. I mean, and him being around that mood and those people. I mean, it was just uh, he's got had this very rich life that really only culminates in the Olympics and then culminates further in his decades of trying to reckon with what he unleashed by taking that stand, both in terms Mm -hmm. of backlash against him and his family, but also, you know, John makes the case, and I think it's a credible case, that the reason you had so much uh, money open up for athletes in the 1970s and 80s was was precisely 
fear of the kind of rebellions that were um, that were seen in 1968 and beyond. So, you know, he thinks that the entire economic structure of sports changed because they showed the potential of what black athletic rebellion could look like. So well, it's powerful. Yeah, it's very powerful. And the fact that you call it black athletic rebellion is an amazing terminology and we can make all kinds of links to one of the very foundations of the peculiar institution of our nation in slavery and the idea of rebellion against that. But we don't want you to rebel. We want you to come back for more of the open run with Will Strickland and my special guest, Dave Zirin, on the other side of this. Back giving you more of what you asked for. It's the open run with Will Strickland, where the lecture is conducted from the mic into the speaker. In conversation with my very special guest, Dave Zirin from The Nation magazine, Edge of Sports podcast, so many other things uh, as we did uh, just a second ago, just talking about everything you're into. But I'm going to get into some NCAA, which has always been the cabal of evil to many. Can we use the word collusion between the NCAA? the WNBA and the WNBPA because of the early entry draft rule mm. that women can't go into the WNBA until their draft class or their, their their graduating class is done and they have to be at least 22 years old. But just recently in the 2021 NBA draft, just the other day, 36 women changed their lives. One of them was a young lady from Finland of South Sudanese heritage. She's 19. If you want to change the economic strata of the WNBA, Having these women who are exciting on the college level, a.k.a. the Caitlin Clarks of Iowa and the Paige Beckers mm-hmm. of UConn come in at 1920, like you had the Kobe Bryants and, 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 the, and the He Who Shan't Be Named and, and Kevin Maurice Garnett and people like that come in. I mean, they are outliers for sure. Not every person who declares early is going to be that person. Right. But would, would you say that, that a rule like that should have been changed in order to change the economic strata, and also the viewership and fan support of the WNBA? Well, it's interesting uh, because my my belief is, of course, that um, if you're 18 and you're good enough, you should have a place in the league. Simple as that. You know, that's the way it works in golf, tennis, I mean, even younger in those sports. And I've never liked the fact that in the country club sports, it's if you're good enough to play, you can play. But when it's sports that center brown and black people, um, often from difficult economic backgrounds, it's almost like it's treated like college is finishing school or something. Mm. And to learn how to how to grow up. And Mike Krzyzewski is, you know, is, is Julie Andrews or something, ready to you know, <laughs> and everybody uh, grown up and happy. And that that's just a, a big cloud of nonsense. On the flip side, and so that's my belief. Mm. I do want to give some voice a little bit to the flip side in this regard. Um, for the WNBA in particular and college women's basketball, it's I think it's gaining popularity at a tremendous rate. And if you look at issues like social media impressions, I mean, they kick college men's basketball's butt. And one of the reasons they do that, of course, is because people stay connected to the players over three and four years. And so they like we used to do with men's basketball with players like Patrick Ewing, you know, Chris Mullen. You develop these connections with the players on the collegiate level. 
And that's only going to help the WNBA going forward. So they want the players to build their brands at places like UConn, Stanford, and the like. They want players to be known entities when they walk into the league. They want more Brittany Griners, Diana Taurasi's, people with national followings before they step foot on the court. Uh, is it fair? No. Is it good business for them, particularly where women's basketball is right now? To them, it makes all the sense in the world. I'm going to argue against that, though, Dave, because we just talked about the change in technology and how that, that span changes. So one year at UConn is worth four years at UConn now. Yeah. Right? So, so, so to be fair to Paige Beckers, who I didn't know before this season, and now I'm advocating that she should be the Spencer Haywood of women's basketball mm. and challenge the early entry and hardship rule. I mean, I've been talking about this for like a month, more mm -hmm. than that. And if she did that, how much it would change not only the way people view the WNBA, but if we're talking about equality and we want reasonable pay based on what we do and, and the revenue we bring in and everything else, even though women's basketball has a higher percentage of, of the revenue share than men do. Now there's visibility. Now there's a, a wider, broader league with more uh, broadcast possibilities. Mm -hmm. I argue that this can be done. So I, I just want to make sure that that we acknowledge the fact that if we're going to use social media as like the platform to speak about the difference in the Diana Taurasi's and people like that who had to play four years at UConn to get their names up, the, the Candace Parker's four years under Pat, the late Pat Summit, you know, um, to get their names up. Paige Beckers, Kaylin Clark, I did not know them before the season started. When the NCAA tournament came, I knew who they were. They right. were household names. So. Right. I think that's an advantage to the to not only to the WNBA, but maybe a disadvantage to the NCAA. Yeah, no, you make great points. I mean, everything is on fast forward these days. So you can build that kind of platform and that brand through one year, two years uh, in the league. And the WNBA is going to have to wake up to that eventually. Um, mm. I do. I mean, and some of this is my, my selfishness as a fan, because I do like the idea of Paige Becker's senior leading a UConn team deep into the tournament and culminating the career the way uh, Brianna Stewart did. And, you know, in that same kind of uh, mindset and mentality of who's going to be the best UConn player ever, Tarasi, Brianna Stewart, Paige Becker's, you know, I, I could go deeper, swing cash, Shea Rao. Mm. And, you know, it's so many fun players to think about. Nikisha Sales is mad at you right now. The sales should be mad at me, um, but but th this is what this is what makes it fun. Uh, this is what makes it interesting. And uh, but at the same time, yeah, we're living in a fast forward sports world. So um, I get what you're saying, and I think it's got actually a ton of merit, especially because I there's a fundamental injustice that undergirds everything that we're talking about, which is that you're preventing somebody over 18 years old from making their money. No and doubt, that's wrong, and that that needs to be corrected. But Mark Emmert has the official ladder of the March Madness. It's not even called the Women's or Men's National Championship game anymore. It's called March Madness. Or bracketology. Like, and that's all branded. <laughs> yeah, bracketology. All that's branded, and they're eating, and nobody else is eating. You know, I remember Shabazz Napier talking about he was hungry at night, yeah. you know, winning a national title with Kevin Ollie, and then saying, I'm hungry. Like, mm -hmm. that doesn't make sense. I don't want to go on a, a deep dive and rail against Mark Emmert all day because we know – what he's done with women's basketball. We saw the, the weight room debacle. And then yeah. we saw it just right after that. Like if they did, it's not like they learned anything because the women's volleyball tournament, they had similar, I want to call them 
what's the word I'm looking for is accommodations. Mm. They were similar and that they were terrible mm -hmm. and, and that there was no broadcast area for that. And I think you spoke about this on CBC, how big volleyball is in one of the biggest countries on the planet in Brazil. Yeah. Uh, not, not only is volleyball huge in Brazil, I mean, really second only to soccer, uh, but also uh, volleyball is huge in huge sections of the United States, like California, mm. Texas. I mean, the Florida, tour, yeah. Florida. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, you know, and it's, it's, it's something that isn't discussed. It's certainly not broadcast or hyped on ESPN or anything like that, but it's there. Mm. And it, it, it not only does it demand and deserve accommodations, there's money that the NCAA is actually leaving on the table because they're such a fattened cartel that they can't even see new opportunities as they're become as they're availing themselves to them. Because if you're Mark Emmert, you're making four million dollars a year. You've got a team of vice presidents who make like a million dollars a year each to help you facilitate this injustice. Because that's really what the NCAA is there for. It's there to facilitate mm. an injustice. It's it's not needed. We don't need an NCAA to have college sports. You do need an NCAA to punish programs that are daring to try to get around the structures of the NCAA. And so it's, no doubt. it's, it's DNA is something that we should oppose. And, and Mark Emmert in $4 million a year isn't going to do it. I will say this for folks who are looking for a bar fact, fact at the bar, if you're still going to a bar these days, <laughs> how about for your next zoom call with your family to talk about what's wrong with the NCAA? I always say, Look at the head football coach at Clemson. Dabble Swinney, with bonuses, makes $10 million a year. Rewind to 1981. Clemson wins the national championship. It has a coach named Danny Ford. Danny Ford made 50 G. Wow. Danny Ford made for coaching a national championship football team in 1981. We're not talking Newt Rockney times. Mm. 1981, Herschel Walker was playing at Georgia. These aren't ancient times. And well, some kids would say that 40 years is a long time. Hmm. Well, they're just haters. Um, <laughs> they have no respect. But the, the <laughs> point is, is more, how does a $50,000 a year job become a $10 million a year job? How does that happen? That's not 40 years of cost of living increases. I'll tell you that right now. Mm. No, it has to do with the incredible amount of money that has flooded the system. You know, mm television through local cable deals i mean it's because i mean the march madness which you mentioned the contract on that is 8.8 .8 billion dollars mm. have that much money in the system and yet you expect players to pretty much be the same as they were in 1981 1971 1921 it's ridiculous i mean it's like think about the difference between a horse and a car a hundred years ago doesn't look anything like a car right now. Right. But a horse still looks like a horse. Right. And the way the NCAA operates is they literally look at these players like they're horses. They do. And you know, like they, they, they are they are they are workers on the farm, you know, and then you've got people like the head coach of Creighton say, we have to stay on the plantation. And Greg, Greg like, oh, yeah. Just rip the veil right off this thing, why don't you? You know. <laughs> <laughs> And so, so this this is where we find ourselves now, where um where the players are saying, wait a minute, you know, NCAA is driving a Corvette, and we're still asked to 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 high ho silver. So this needs right. to be in a big way.
Well, you talk about injustice, and I'm going to shift gears since we're talking about horsepower and vehicles and go to the NBA and look at the preventive measures they're taking uh, in light of the Derek Chauvin murder case or murderer case, as I call it, and the, the results of that. I think the closing uh, arguments uh, were made and, and we'll get a result soon. But what do you think the NBA's recourse is against not not just not playing games in, in the event that the result is not what it, quote unquote, should be? What do you think their recourse is? I mean, I think the NBA has themselves in a situation right now. And actually, Major League Baseball has themselves in this place, too, and the NHL, which is they've laid down a precedent which says we're not going to play games if there is injustice afoot. You know, hmm. They didn't shut down their games the other week um, after the police killing of Dante Wright. They, they didn't shut down those games because uh, they were concerned about, you know, rioting or protests or anything like that. They shut them down because they realized that, like, the games just can't go on as planned in the wake of this killing, you know, mm. out of respect for players and what they're going through, out of respect for um, people in, in, in the front office, what they might be going through, because – these things are now recognized as being traumatic for entire communities, particularly for the black and brown communities that make up um, the, the, the source of the players themselves. Mm-hmm. And there actually, there's an element of progress here that was pushed, of course, by the players themselves, which is that teams have to be more than just teams. And there's a pressure on them right now that they also have to do more than just write things like end racism in the end zone or, you know, Black Lives Matter on the court, that it can't just be about branding. It can't just be about woke capitalism, attempting to connect with young people who are fed up with the system. I mean, they have to actually put some skin in the game and show that they give a damn. And so I think what happens with the trial of the murderer, Derek Chauvin, I mean, will have a ripple effect in terms of what the T-Wolves do in particular, but also the twins in the Minnesota wild, because they, they've, they've laid the marker down at this point. That's a beautiful thing. And I think I think you you make a great point about having skin in the game and doing something more substantive than they have done in the past, not just to brand in a cursory way, but really get at the heart of the matter and say, look, we are serious about this. We have to be more engaged and more involved, not only as individual players, but as organizations, as associations, as leagues to say, wait a minute, we are part of the problem if we don't do something about it. You know, um, right. You're absolutely right about that. And um, I think a lot of this, the, the, the credit for, if we see this as a good thing, and obviously not all people do by any stretch of the imagination, mm. but as someone who does think it's a good thing, I think credit goes back to last August, 2020. And this hasn't been discussed nearly enough, which is when the players starting with the Bucks said, we're not going to play after the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. That in and of itself was like a shot across the bow at the executive and ownership class that says, you know, this is, game is still dependent on our labor. So you have a choice when these level, when these crisis inflection points hit. It's like you could either stand with us or stand against us, but either way, there's not going to be a game that's played. And mm. there's going to be a pressure on executives and team owners to say we stand with the players because they understand that that's where their bread is buttered. And mm-hmm. without, not only, it's not only without no players, there is no game. There's also the extra pressure of, say you're a team owner that's like, well, screw you. No, we're playing, and I'm docking your pay, and I'll suspend you the next game if I have to. You know, mm-hmm. 
that's not a team that free agents are going to say, hey, that's where I want to play. No that's doubt. Where- and I think we have to we'd be remiss not to give the flowers and proper due and respect to the WNBA, especially the women of the Atlanta dream who are so influential in what happened in Georgia, asking their own one of their co-owners of their team, uh, who was the senator there. I won't say her name for certain reasons to utilize their platform as a unified unit, not just the, the dream, but the entire league mm-hmm. and pushing this forward and being an impetus for a lot of guys in the NBA who are looking at them going, I, I admire that. I mean, you see guys who play in the NBA who respect the game and respect the players who just so happen to be women because when you're a baller, you're a baller, right? Mm-hmm. But you're also a person, and they're helping to stand up for their rights. I think that's a beautiful thing to see. You talked about the owners being as involved and engaged, and you see a guy like Mark Cuban who's always been, mm-hmm. whether it's his rivalry with the late David Stern or how – creative he wants to be and how involved he wants to be and how the players move, um, not in a Jerry Jones type of way. Mm-hmm. Where you, let me control the narrative with you guys. And I'll get down here and kneel today, but don't do it tomorrow. Yeah, They talk about the play-in tournament in the NBA. His star player, Luka Doncic, does not believe it, it's a worthwhile exercise. Draymond Green believes it's silly, you know, that you play 72 games and you make it to eighth place or seventh place. You earn your right to be in the playoffs you could lose two games in a row and not be in the playoffs. Mm. Um, what do you think about the play-in tournament? Well, I'm a Wizards fan, so, of course, I love the play-in tournament. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're finally winning some games. Russ is looking like Russ. Uh, you know, after you get behind – after you get past Russ and Bradley Beal, it's not the strongest roster in the world, uh, to put it mildly, but it, it, it's, it's something I like as a fan just because it keeps me glued into the standings when my team might not be doing what it's doing. So it's, it's having its desired hypnotic effect upon me. Mm. Um, I think it would be better if there was a play in tour, uh, if there was a tournament among teams that didn't make the playoffs and the tournament is for seeding in the draft. Mm. I think that would be really interesting and really good. And, um, and it also would create all kinds of interesting moments like Minnesota Timberwolves. Well, it's like if you win your tournament for the draft, then you're probably going to take Cade Cunningham. But how's that going to work with D'Angelo Russell and Anthony Edwards? You know, so and then they'll be asked about that. Like, like wow, so you guys are going to play to play someone who might take your minutes. How's that going to work? I don't and- think so, because you all right. Let's talk asset management. OK. OK. So you get those assets. If you have a bunch of riches that you can move to get something else, why wouldn't you take that? So sometimes you take the best player available so that you have multiple options as opposed to saying, okay, well, how will we look playing all of them together? They might take that risk and say, okay, we'll play a year with all those guys, see what we have. If they if they work, we keep them. And now we have assets for the future. But if we need to move some because we know their value, why not to bring in someone else? That's true. I'm I'm just still embittered by the Knicks selecting Rob Strickland when they had Mark Jackson at <laughs> yeah. that's a that's a whole nother level of conversation, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, I always like it when the pieces fit and keep everybody in a good state. But so so that's my take on it. You know, it's like I always appreciate it and try to support players when they try to be heard. Players like Luca and Draymond, these these are these, these, these are smart dudes who think about this stuff all the time. So if they think it's silly, then I'm inclined to say, okay, well, their opinion actually has more weight than mine. But as someone who is a Wizards fan and um, 
it's having its intended effect upon me. What's your opinion, though, Will? Because I, I mean, if I've, I think I heard it first, it might have uh, changed. No, no. My- I, I just I just believe you know it, there is some merit to to both sides of that argument. I mean, depends on what side of it you sit. If you're in tenth place, of course you want to play in tournament. If you're in seventh, you don't. So I understand both sides of it. I I understood it as an experiment in the bubble to create more awareness to generate some more money. So this is the way that the NBA can, with a truncated season again this year, to create more excitement around the playoffs. But it's also leading to guys sitting out games and healthy scratches and stuff like that. So there's always a loophole to something. Mm -hmm. To find a team $25,000 for sending healthy players is like saying, oh, look, I found a nickel today. I'm enriched. Like, stop. It, it's it's exactly. it's all curse. It's all, like, for show. It's, it's parcel on the plate at the end of the day. Oh, anyway, speaking of Luca, I mean, you ever watch Luca and just think, my goodness, this is just like watching money going up and down the court. This guy, I mean, in the next 10, 15 years, he's going to make a lot of people very wealthy. Including himself. Well, and, yeah. and- but the ancillary folks, like from being on this team, from the spotlight, from what he brings into the league, it's going to be bananas. From a global standpoint, too, not just looking at North America, yes. but what he does in Europe. I mean, if he's playing on the, the Slovenian uh, national team and then it, they're in the Olympics, and what if they end up challenging and being a U.S. team? I'm not saying it can happen or will happen, but we've seen it happen before. Yeah. Right? And he's Luka. And, he can do all kinds yeah. of well, Luca is maybe in consideration for MVP, and I'm a big movie guy. I think you are too. I, I watch your Twitter feed a lot, so I, I'm going to call this the unusual suspects. Ah. Although one of them is a usual suspect, but not so usual because of his record right now, his team's record right now. I know. So in the MVP race, mm-hmm. we talk about another guy, Nikola Jokic. The line in Vegas is he's the leading candidate for the MVP. Hasn't been injured, played well has to suffer through this injury to Jamal Murray. They were in the Western Conference Finals last year. They're still in the hunt. I think they're fourth in the West right now. So he has a case. You also have the case for uh, Wardell Stephen Curry II, yes. whose team is in ninth place, but he's playing out of his mind right now. Mm-hmm. And if they make the play-in tournament and then they make the playoffs, that's a dangerous proposition for a team that knows how to win in the playoffs. Yes. Right? Then you have Christopher Emmanuel Paul. The sun, everywhere he's gone, his team has improved. Mm-hmm. OKC had a 0.02 chance of making the playoffs last year. Oh, 0.02. Somehow they get to the playoffs. The Suns haven't seen the playoffs in years. All of a sudden, they're the second, they have the second best record in the NBA. How? Well, well, it's the addition of Chris Paul, but what do you do if uh, you're giving the MVP to someone who's not the best player on their own team? Mm, well, but again, so this is where and this is where the argument gets started. Like crazier, and I don't want to leave out Damon, uh, Dame Lillard in, in Portland because he's in that mix too. But best and valuable are different. The Suns can win games without Devin Booker, and, they, and they've done that this year. Sure, they have not won games without Chris Paul. But you also know that there is other than Steve Nash, which is still a bit of a curiosity on many levels. You know that in <laughs> prejudice against point guards when it comes to MVP. You look at the history of MVPs; it, it centers in wings up and down the list. And I mean, you got you got a you 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 got you got you got Steve Nash. You got you got Magic, which I mean that's hard. And you know you got Oscar. Yeah, Oscar ever won? yeah I mean I don't. I'm not sure Oscar ever won. One. He didn't. I don't think he did. 
Yeah, and Magic at 6'9 has to be seen as an anomaly in this conversation. Okay, fair um, enough. It, but I'm talking about people like Isaiah Thomas and Kevin Johnson. Like, they never sniffed MVP. And I mean Isaiah, you know, Detroit Pistons, Isaiah Tom- Thomas. Right, right. Second best point guard in history, although no one will, will say that anymore. Um, you just said it, and I'll say it too. Good. Thank you. Dragging the Detroit Pistons to two titles. Scoring 16 points in 94 seconds in a playoff. Against the Knicks, I'll never forget that as long as I live. Hubie Brown with the short sleeve shirt and the tie, the brown tie. (laughs) Couldn't believe it. I was watching that live. Like, what are we? I was like, I was a child, and I'm just just losing my mind. And I was a Knicks fan, and I was losing my mind. The, The point is, is that, like, it's very hard for some reason for a point guard, largely, I think, because their statistics usually aren't things that are measurable in numbers. Like, what Chris Paul brings to the table is so beyond, you know, 19 points, 10 assists, whatever, you know, it's like he brings a certain ability to set up an offense, which is unparalleled in the league as he's showing, as he showed in OKC and as he's showing yet again. Mm. So so I think, and also James Harden is a question. You mentioned injuries. I picked Joel Embiid before the season even began. Mm. And I was feeling extremely smart about that for most of the season. I get that injuries might have quelled that. So I think when, when the smoke clears, I mean, Particularly, I, th- I was when Murray, when Jamal Murray went down, I just said to myself, all right, this sort of clinches the conversation if the Nuggets are even decent going right. without Murray, that this is Nikola Jokic. And the media has a Jokic love affair. I mean, let's let's be frank about that. It's the the, the greatest passing center in NBA history. You know, like he, he was a second round draft pick. He always looks like he just got punched in the nose for some reason. I'm not right. sure why. And, uh, you know, I think that there's they're a little bit besotted at the thought of him being MVP. Well, we could see that happening. I want to stay on the movie theme, or at least the the film entertainment theme. I don't know if you're a fan of Power or Snowfall or The Wire. I'm pretty sure you're in tune with those things. One, and there was a question on Twitter. I've never been to Snowfall. I've never. I haven't, I haven't tried yet. Okay, so well, I mean, I need Wire and Power. I'm all up. Okay, so here's the deal. I'll do it like this. Power versus Breaking Bad, which one do you choose? Oh, oh that's so hard. I'm, I'm going to go with Power. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It was really hard to say, largely because I feel like Breaking Bad lacked the number of characters with whom I was invested. Mm. I found mm, my okay. invested across the board in Power and a lot of different people. Well, okay, so I can't I can't ask you about power and snowfall because you haven't been there yet. No. So I'll go to because the, the whole argument on Twitter was I saw snowfall it. versus the wire, and I'm like, well, what kind of re- is this a real question? Because the wire is in the wire. The wire. I'll <laughs> leave it at that for right now. But so you got power versus the wire. Not is there, close. It's no. not a conversation. It's the greatest to me. I always say it's the greatest television show ever writ or spit in the history of everything yes yeah and part of it written by a tremendous dc crime writer because you know, i'm coming to you from dc so i've no got doubt. george pelicanos mm-hmm. one of the great great thriller mystery hard-boiled writers in the history of the genre and he just out of nowhere said you know i think i'm going to help write this tv show and so mm-hmm. The dialogue there it comes from one of my favorite writers who was my favorite writer before the wire even sparked so i've got so much love for the wire do you know um 
when we used to we used to keep track of where the wire was being filmed right and friends of mine, i would go with some friends of mine they would put up graffiti pieces so they would show up on camera on the hopes that they would show up on camera right when the wire would film there i mean i mean the wire is in a special category with shows like the sopranos where you just you know even making comparisons you just sort of go like this and say no it's the wire. tough it's tough well, we're talking we're, we're talking the drug trade and how it affected not only Baltimore and microcosm or America and macro, when we're talking about snowfall and the idea that an American institution like the CIA was bringing cocaine in the United States, EGATS, how could that be? Yeah. Um, but they, they had you know, to pay for it. Yeah. Well, you know, you got to pay for it somehow yeah. outside of human capital 420. And what does that mean when you hear 420? What does that mean to you? Uh, it means that I'm in a ridiculous situation living in Maryland right outside. I live five minute walk from DC mm -hmm. and weed is legal in DC. Weed is legal in Virginia and it's not legal in Maryland. And to me, it just shows that this country still has to, to go somewhere. I also, when you say 420, some things that come to mind are the idea that with legalization, you're still seeing oppression. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of us had a lot of high hopes that in this era of legalization, you would see the criminal justice system, particularly the criminalizing of black and brown youth, uh, become something that actually lessens mm. and then weight off the war on drugs. But what you're seeing instead is a lot of police and criminal justice acting as gatekeepers for the big marijuana dealers and corporations that are coming up. So they've become almost like the private security, the Pinkertons of big weed. I'm just calling it big weed. Right. It's not big pharma. It's, we call it street pharmaceuticals where I'm from. Okay. Right. That you had high hopes was just a play on words, I'm sure. Oh, yes. Oh, indeed. Well, <laughs> so that's what comes to mind. I'd like to see an end to the war on drugs. I'd like to see mm. legalization. And, um, and I think that, you know, we need, we just, we just still need to lose a lot of our conceptions about, what marijuana is and what it does for folks and what it doesn't do for folks. Well, let's be clear. If you're making hooch in a still in the woods of West Virginia, it's illegal, but you put a government seal on it and you sell in the store, as mm. long as they get their piece and get to wet their beak, it's okay. The same thing happened with cigarettes. Prohibition made a whole nother economy for America. Yes. This weed economy is making organized. a whole nother economy. It's, it's organized crime. I mean, yeah. let's be honest about it. Right. But it's, it's highly organized crime because now they have laws around who can move the units, who can move the bud and who can't move it. Exactly. And we call it dispensaries. And we'll only offer licenses to those we know. Exactly. They'll be able to get our peace from. Exactly. So, so you asked me what I think about with 420. I would love it if it was a day of celebration of the joys and largesse that legalization hath brought. But <laughs> tragically, the contradictions still abound. And, you know, I got to say, wh whether one chooses to partake or not, we all have a vested interest in ending the war on drugs. And absolutely the obscene use of resources, misuse of resources in a country that and in a continent that so deeply needs uh, its priorities met in other areas. Without question. Now, being a D.C. guy. I would say that Dave Zirin is the fourth best hooper out of D.C. behind the late, great Elgin Gabe Baylor. Mm. Dave Bing, 
Who will be third for you? Baylor. Not, not, not DMV. You can't go DMV. Can't do DMV. No, sir. I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> That's why I kept it in D.C. I was thinking of DeMatha. I was thinking of Durant. You already knocked out Bing. You already knocked. Oh my God! I'm I'm a, I'm gonna say Monica McNutt. Okay. Out of DC, okay. captain of the Georgetown basketball team, uh, almost beat Connecticut in the tournament from Southeast. I'm gonna go with Monica. I love that. And so, Dave, you're number four. But if you had an opportunity to go one on one with any player in the history of the game ever, who would it be and why? If you could go, just play. Yeah, right. I'm going to stay D.C., and but I'm not doing it just because – or I should say DMV. Um, okay. But, and, and For I, those who don't know, it's not the Department of Motor Vehicles. We are talking about – D.C., Maryland, Virginia. There and it is. I got to say, like, you're going to ask 100 people and you're not going to get this answer, but I want you to know it comes from the heart. Um, I would choose Adrian Dantley. Oh, Oh, okay. I love that. I would because look, I'm I'm five foot ten. I was the starting center for my uh, high school team, <laughs> and I, I regularly had to guard people who were like six five, six six. That that was sort of where our league topped out. There was one guy six eight, and I would sit at home and watch old school VCR videotapes of Adrian Dantley's post game, and mm. higher post game out of okay, this guy's six foot four. He's scoring 30 points a game, playing down on the blocks, and he can't jump over a magazine. I need to yeah, I need to study how this gentleman operates and becomes this incredible player, uh, this Hall of Fame talent. So I would love to play against Adrian Danley, who, by the way, is still a youth referee in this area. I see him at my son games all the time. He's like one, he's like a ref. My 12-year-old he's son. He's a traffic guard, too. From what I understand, he's a traffic guard. And the only reason he did that, because the benefits, he goes, the benefits are great. Yeah, I love Adrian Tanley. He's, he's he's amazing. And I would I would want to play one-on-one <laughs> one against him just because, I mean, I would just want to use the moves that he taught me and see if I could manufacture. I mean, if I even, like, lost 11-1, to one, I would be the – I would, like, frame that. Because I, I think I could get one or two points off him just using the moves that he <laughs> He might appreciate that. Yeah. As much as I appreciate having you on our MVP today, our Hall of Famer, Dave Zirin from The Nation magazine, sports editor of The Nation, uh, Edge of Sports uh, podcast, and, of course, the collision with Eton Thomas. Amazing. Will, it's such a thrill to be here. Will the thrill. It's such a thrill <laughs> to be here. Um, please have me back again. I got a book coming out this fall, The Kaepernick Effect. I'd love to chop it up with you. Without question. And I think we can see on the scroll, they can see where they can find you at Edge of Sports. Uh, and that's on Twitter and on IG, correct? Yes. So if you want to reach out to Dave, hit him at Edge of Sports uh, on IG and Twitter, and we'll hit you up right after this with more of The Open Run with Will Strickland. back to the open run as we are now entering winning time and i want to thank 
my very special guest, Mr. Dave Zirin, who came on and did his thing as per usual, even though we don't have that much of a usual 19 episodes in, but we have a history. Work with me, not against me. As a matter of fact, because Dave wanted to work with me, he's offered us a prize here at The Open Run. There are three questions you have to answer to receive an autographed copy. The first three people to answer these questions properly by hitting me up on my socials, W underscore Strickland and the number one on Twitter, Will Strickland and the number one on IG, and the rest, you know, holler if you hear me. Question one, who was the other poster in my nursery as a child next to the poster of John Carlos, Tommy Smith, and Peter Norman? Word to my dear old dad, bless the dead. Question number two, who is the third best player in Washington, D.C. history? Just in front of Dave Zirin. And three, who is the player amongst those who have been maligned in the MVP voting in the history of the league who once scored 16 points in 94 seconds during a 1984 playoff game against Dave's beloved New York Knickerbockers? The first three people who correctly answer those questions will receive an autographed book by Dave Zirin. As a matter of fact, the book is called Things That Make White People Uncomfortable by Michael Bennett of the NFL. Do you remember him, the Seattle Seahawks? And Dave Zirin. Just a small token of my respect for you and your participation for listening to and being a part of the experience that is The Open Run with Will Strickland. It is an absolute must that I honor April 16th, 1947, that was the day that the artist formerly known as Ferdinand Louis Alcindor Jr. was born. You know him better as the captain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, happy 74th cap. Want to also send happy birthday shouts out to Candace Parker, who celebrated a birthday this past weekend. Shouts out to Candace, who is a definite Hall of Famer in the very near future. Uh, get well soon. To Jamal Murray, part of Team Canada and also part of the Denver Nuggets, blew out his ACL. Really looking forward to seeing him perform in the playoffs again this year. He was superlative last season. Get well soon, Jamal Murray. Staying on the Canadian side of things, there was history made in a recent Toronto Raptors versus Oklahoma City Thunder game in which three players who hail from Montreal, Quebec, La Belle Provence. Did I say that right? I don't know. It sounded good to me at least. Uh, Lugans Dort, Lou the Beast, who came out smoking in the first quarter. Ken Birch, and of course, Chris Boucher of the Toronto Raptors, uh, all played in one game. It's the first time in, in history. And perhaps these guys will make more history if Team Canada qualifies for the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo, which are being played in 2021. But alas, if all of these guys from Montreal, along with some other talented players from Canada, end up helping Team Canada qualify for the Olympics, we will have friend of the program, Megan McPeak, called into games as a color analyst for CBC, the Canadian Broadcast Corporation, during the 2020 Olympics. So shouts out to Megan. Congratulations and salute to you. Gotta send some rest and power shots to William Robert Bobby Slick Leonard. Slick Leonard was a lifer in basketball, an Indiana legend, played at the University of Indiana, won a national championship in 1953, won three titles as the coach of the Indiana Pacers and the ABA, was a longtime commentator there in Pacerland, and will be sorely missed. Who also lost their battle against chronic asthma is the son, the eldest son of Scotty Maurice Pippen, uh, Antron, 
who uh, died just recently. So love, light, and blessings to Scotty and his entire family in this time of woe. Also want to send fairly well shouts to my man Lamarcus Nuray Aldridge, who, I have to be honest, I've been critical of in the past. Quite critical, as a matter of fact. But he, as a player, made his next move his best move by retiring nine points shy of 20,000 in his career. Almost 8,500 rebounds, a seven-time All-Star, five-time All-NBA team member. Is he a Hall of Famer? I don't know. You tell me. You know how to reach me. A man who needs no introduction anywhere the world round because he is the ultimate Hall of Famer, Michael Jeffrey Jordan, will be doing double duty during the induction ceremonies of the Hall of Fame this year. First and foremost for the late, great Kobe Bean Bryant and also for Baylor head coach, women's head coach, Ken Mulkey. So I don't know if we're going to have a meme-worthy Michael Jordan induction speech or not, but uh, there will be tears, no doubt. I want to send an A1 since day one shout out to the young 19-year-old Anthony Edwards, who's right now leading the Rookie of the Year, balloting unless LaMelo Ball, who just cleared from his injury to come back to play, will be the Rookie of the Year. At any rate, in a recent post-game interview, the young Mr. Edwards was asked if he knew who Alex Rodriguez was. Now, if you're not aware, Rodriguez and his, I think I spoke about this in the podcast before, but he's a part of the ownership group that's looking to buy out Glenn Taylor to own the Minnesota Timberwolves. The kid, he's 19, he's playing with his hair, sitting there going, I don't know who that is. And people are shocked. He's 19. Alex Rodriguez is not big like that. And if people know him outside of his sport, it's mostly because of his ex-girlfriend, right? I don't know. He didn't know him. They made a big deal out of it. It was slow news day. Actually, almost feel bad for talking about it. Maybe not as bad as revealing that Charles Barkley was given $20,000 while he was playing at Auburn University. This is breaking news. Just so you know, the Center for Disease Control just let us know, as a matter of fact, that water is wet. Again, slow news day. You know what? Auburn got the best deal out of that. Charles Barkley was a murderer down there. I mean, a killer in the old SEC. He was doing work at 300 plus pounds. 6'4". You'll never see another player like him again. They say Zion is different. Zion is at least 6'6". Barkley's barely 6'4". Barely. Best of luck to young Mr. Evan Mobley, who is declaring himself eligible for the 2021 NBA draft. The big man out of USC played one year there. Drawing comparisons to someone like Christopher Weston Bosch and I guess escaping some of those program sanctions that Andy Enfield's USC Trojans are going to face in the next year or so. So, made his next move his best move, clearly. Good luck. I'm not quite sure we will ever hear another story like the story of Scott Drew and the resurrection and rebuild of his program at Baylor. If you know the story about the ex-coach who was there way back in 2003, Dave Bliss, who had gotten run out of Dallas, coaching at SMU, paying off players, doing all kinds of stuff, lack of institutional control, got the job at Baylor. Some people can fail up. Did the same thing. A murder case on campus between some of his players. Patrick Dennehy was murdered by one of his teammates, Carlton Dotson, if I'm not mistaken, was his name. He's doing 35 years in prison now as a result. Dave Bliss was doing all kinds of dirt behind the scenes, trying to cover it up, having people lie for him and say that this didn't happen or that did happen. It was absurd. It was a terrible mess in Waco. Then Scott Drew got the call. His teams barely won any games with Dave Bliss's recruits. But he held out. First year he got his recruits in, they make the dance. They work, 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 work. 
Work for a very long time to become a credible program and to win the national championship this past year is an accomplishment beyond any of the coaching jobs I've watched in basketball, especially in college basketball. And I've been watching college basketball for most of my life. Kudos to you, Scott Drew. Kudos for also turning down a truck, a Jeep, that a local dealership offered wrapped up in Baylor colors and everything else, part of the parade when they won the championship. And the dealer was doing an interview on television recently, and he said, you know, I'm going to wrap this up, let Scott take this truck down to the hood, get some more players, and like, whoa. Even he noticed he went out of bounds, but maybe that's how he really felt. Guess it slipped out when he wasn't looking. And Scott was like, nah, can't do that, my man. It's not how we get down to Baylor. Salute to you, Scott Drew. I got to give you somebody else who was on one. Not the car dealer, but Wardell Stephen Curry. And I'm telling you, he's still on one. Last night, dropped 49 points in a victory over the Philadelphia 76ers. And I'll tell you this. If the Warriors make the playoffs in a play-in game, play-in tournament, if they make the playoffs as the eighth seed, Utah, Phoenix, whoever it is, beware. This man is on one for real. 11 straight games with 30-plus points. There are only a couple of people over the age of 33 who have done that in history. The other two are Michael Jeffrey Jordan and Kobe being Bryant. Steph is doing his thing. If they weren't so bad... He'd be the MVP candidate right now because he's ending the season on a tear. Got a bunch of court surfing done during the weekend, as I normally do. Watching a lot of basketball, as I normally do. And I want to give love and respect to the New York Knickerbockers of Tom Thibodeau. Julius Randle, an all-star. They're starting to figure it out. They got some young guys in there. R.J. Barrett doing his thing. Derek Martell Rose coming off the bench being a leader. Running that bench mob. Isaiah Quickly. They, They got some weapons. But they play defense, and they know where their bread is buttered. And I never thought that Tibbs was the fit for this team. He clearly is. They're into taking instruction. They know he's a curmudgeon. It doesn't seem to matter. New York basketball is alive again. That's a good thing for the league. That's a good thing for New York City. So look, they are no longer a closet full of left shoes. Moving down the turnpike to Philadelphia. My man Ben Simmons put his chest all out. Just huffing and puffing, talking about the Nets. They have one basketball and no defense. Why do they think they can beat us? In the game where I guess they pulled out something from the Greg Popovich regular season DMP slash old slash 24 hour flu file that we found here at the Open Run HQ. The tie break didn't mean a whole lot to the Brooklyn Nets. They didn't care if they were in first place in the East. They feel like they're going to beat whoever's there. Mighty disrespectful if you ask me, but we'll see. Teams are getting fined for sending healthy players, but there's a belief system in Brooklyn that is beyond anything I know about. But I think we've seen this movie before where you overestimate what you really have. Yes, Clippers, I'm talking about you from 2020. Yes, I am. As a matter of fact, the Philadelphia 76ers not only defeated the Brooklyn Nets, but they also snapped the seven-game losing strike that the Clippers were on since Rajon Pierre Rondo arrived in town. They're trying to prove their point. So let's look around the league and see what's going on. Because in the East, the Sixers are at the top at 39-17. and 17, Lost a tough one last night. Steph Curry, I'm trying to tell you, 49 points, man. For those who don't know, the Golden State Warriors used to be in Philadelphia before the 76ers. The 76ers came from Syracuse and Philadelphia and went to San Francisco. It's a long story if you know the history of the NBA. Maybe I'll talk about it one day. We'll have a fireside chat. At any rate... In the East, the Sixers at 39-17. and In the West, the Utah Jazz still sit firmly atop 
the mountain. That said, let's get into our power 10 because there's been a change up top. Philadelphia had a great week. They leapfrog right away to number one. And I don't know if this is indicative of what they'll look like heading into the playoffs with Tobias Harris and Ben Simmons sitting out. But they're starting around in the form defensively, especially with Matisse Thibel, who I think is widely underrated as a defensive player. One of the two players, I think, in the league with 75 blocks or 75 steals and 50 blocks. He doesn't start. But Philadelphia at one, Utah at two, Phoenix at three, the Brooklyn Nets at four, the Clippers at five, Milwaukee Bucks at six, the Los Angeles Lakers at seven, the Denver Nuggets at eight, the Boston Celtics, welcome to the party, Boston, at nine, and at ten, the Portland Trailblazers. Last but not least, before we go, i like to salute Dwayne Tyrone Wade Jr., who is now a part owner of the Utah Jazz, Mr. Dade County himself, Wade County, leaving Miami, leaving Mickey Aronson, leaving Patrick James Riley to go to the Wasatch Mountains and ply his trade as an owner. Now, Mickey Aronson, who is the owner of the Miami Heat, said he was disappointed that Dwayne didn't come into the Heat Mafia and stay there for life. I don't know, something must have been going on. We said he extended an opportunity for Dwayne Wade to own a team or have part ownership in the team. Allegedly, Wade said he was not prepared to do so at the time. But he's known Ryan Smith, who is the governor of the Utah Jazz now, for quite some time. They work on a couple of different projects together. And I find that this is going to be an interesting contrast in style and culture. Dwayne Wade, very open about his love for his daughter Zaya and her desire to live as a young girl, as a woman, uh, even though being born a young man, a boy, in the home of the Mormons. I only hope that people will have as much tolerance and awareness and the burden it takes for us all to be more empathetic toward one another. And so until next week, do what's popular with the population. Make sure you don't get beat off the dribble and continue listening to the podcast where basketball and life are one, The Open Run with Will Strickland. Rich kid. Let's go, my guy. Easy.